Last time we spoke about the horrific Battle of Bloody Ridge, or also known as the Battle of Edson's Ridge. Kawaguchi, the Bear Battalion, and Oka all tried to make their arduous trek through the jungles of Guadalcanal to hit the Marines defending Henderson Field. By sheer numbers, the Japanese should have had the battle won and done, but they completely overestimated Mother Nature, and her cruel jungle terrain foiled the assault. The Japanese were butchered in the intense combat, each battalion showing up at differing times and at different places, making it absolute chaos. In the end, Kawaguchi had to withdraw all of the battalions from the fight and to make the trek back to Taibu Point which, for some of the men, would last three weeks. Many of these men would starve to death, others succumb to their wounds. Starvation Island, from that point on, would become a focal point for reinforcements by both sides. Yet today, we are venturing back to Green Hell. This episode is the Battle of Oribawa. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all of that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Last time we were talking about New Guinea, General Hori was pursuing the Australian and Papuan forces as they made fighting withdrawals from one place after another. Despite his supply lines becoming dangerously stretched, Hori kept up pace with his eyes on the ultimate prize, Port Moresby. By September the 10th, the Allies had fallen back to a high point known as Oribawa Ridge, some 25 miles north of Port Moresby. It was within sight of the Papuan Gulf on the south side of New Guinea. Now going back in time a little bit, the Morabra force had been reinforced by a fresh and experienced Australian Imperial Force Battalion, the 27th Infantry of the 2nd Battalion. General Rowell ordered Brigadier Potts to stop retreating and to make a stand. Potts ended up choosing an excellent defensive position on a hill south of Ifogi. From this vantage point, the Australians would be able to see the Japanese approach over the Kakauta Track, and there were several large open areas clear of tree cover. Potts was able to call in air support, hitting the incoming Japanese on September the 6th and 7th, causing around 30 casualties. Under normal circumstances, Potts would have deployed his fresh troops in reserve for a counterattack once the Japanese had commenced theirs. However, because of the endless running, his 14th and 16th needed rest. So he placed the 27th in the front line on Mission Ridge, while the other two battalions were placed further back on Brigade Hill. Just behind them was Potts HQ, 
and a small company from the 16th. The entire defensive position was essentially three parts, one behind another with gaps between. Overall, he had 1,400 men, while the Japanese who engaged in the Battle of Ifogi were around 1,570. Most of the South Sea's detachment on the Owen-Stanley Ridge were resting along the Kokoda Track between Eroa Village and Templeton's Crossing when the fight broke out at Ifogi. Colonel Kisanose was leading around 1,570 men, like I said, two battalions of the 144th Regiment, the Regimental Artillery, an engineer company, two small detachments of medical and signal troops, and his HQ. After scouting the defenders' positions, Kisanose determined that he would pin down the defenders on Mission Ridge with a single battalion while trying to slip around their flank to block the track to Brigade Hill. But he was unaware it was being held by the 14th and the 16th. On September the 7th, Kusanose commenced his attack with an artillery barrage hitting the 27th on Mission Ridge. The fighting raged until the following morning, but the Japanese were unable to take any ground. The Australians were responding to the Japanese artillery with two 3-inch motors. On the night of September the 7th, the other Japanese battalion was flanking around the rear of Mission Ridge, and by dawn, they found themselves in a gap along the Kokoda Track between the 16th and 14th to their north and Potts HQ to their south. At this point, they were able to see the Australian positions on Brigade Hill, and they quickly sent word to the artillery to switch targets immediately. The 16th and the 14th tried to make a counterattack along the crest of Brigade Hill, just north of a knoll, but it seems the battalions were still too exhausted as the counterattack utterly failed. Half of the casualties for the battle were made during this counterattack. Potts likewise tried to make a small counterattack with his HQ force, but the Japanese simply swatted it away. As the Australian attempts to dislodge the Japanese from blocking their path failed, alongside a break in communication, this all led Lieutenant Colonel Albert Caro to take command of the 16th and to try and withdraw them south through the jungle. The defenders had 87 men die at Ifoki, with 77 wounded. The Japanese, they lost 60, with 165 wounded. However, alongside this, the Allies had 500 men, mainly from the 27th, go completely lost into the jungle without food for over three weeks before finding their comrades again. After the loss at Ifogi, the defenders fled to Minari, where their rearguard was harassed the entire way. The Japanese were still stuck to their heels as they made their way to Irabawa. For failing at Ifogi, Brigadier Potts was relieved of command and replaced by Brigadier Selwyn Porter on September the 10th, just after the 21st Brigade had managed to withdraw from Minari along the Kokoda Track. Porter was provided with reinforcements in the form of the 1st Pioneer Battalion and the 3rd Militia Infantry Battalion from Port Moresby. The Australians established themselves along the Oribawa Ridge, preparing a major counterattack. Their position was south of Ophi Creek, upon a ridgeline. Porter had chosen the ground, deeming it a favorable location to launch a counterattack. Their position was perpendicular to the Kokoda Track, dominated by two high peaks. While they made their way to Oribawa, the Australians tried to delay the Japanese as best as they could by performing some ambushes in the Maguli Range. The 14th and 16th had been continuously fighting battles such as Izarava, Eora, Templeton's Crossing, and Ifogi, and now consisted of just a composite unit of two companies. 
they held a position astride the track around the ridge's northern slopes. The 21st Brigade of the 3rd Battalion and the 27th had been mostly cut off from the fighting around Ifogi, and many were still trying to rejoin their comrades. The 3rd Infantry Battalion held a defensive line along the Oribawa Ridge's east, while the 6th Independent Company protected the flank. The Japanese began with an artillery and mortar bombardment of the Australian position from the northern slope overlooking Ofi Creek. A few skirmishes broke out on the 12th and the 13th, and lacking artillery support, the Australians were unable to counter the Japanese attacks. A few ambushes were made, however, such as the 3rd Infantry Battalion with elements of the 16th at Ofi Creek, where they managed to surprise and kill approximately 20 to 30 Japanese, luring them into a food dump. Meanwhile, Brigadier Kenneth Ether, leading the 25th Brigade, arrived from Port Moresby with orders to launch a counterattack. On his way to Oribawa, Ether passed Brigadier Potts, who had recently handed command over to Brigadier Porter. Impatient for the action, Ether did not stay to hear Potts' story. Ether was an energetic leader, 41 years old at the time. He had commanded militia battalions before the war. Ether had been marked early on by General Allen as a promising battalion commander after witnessing Ether in action in Libya. General Mackey also shared this view. Ether was ordered to halt the enemy advance towards Port Moresby by offensive action as far forward as possible. He was also to regain control of the route to Kokoda through the Izurava Daniki region, and from there, he was to prepare a seizure of Kokoda. He was warned that Naru, Menari, and Ifogi were vital airdrop locations he would need in order to maintain his supply line. Once Ether reached Uberi, on September the 11th, he telephoned Porter who told him he had brought the men to Oribawa. Ether took command of the Moriaro force, now bolstered to around 3,000 men, and ordered the 33rd Battalion to take up a position on the right flank of the 21st Brigade. The 25th Battalion would move forward along the main track, from Porter's rear, and the 31st Battalion would take the left flank. However, the Japanese struck first, as Ether was still deploying the men and this forced him to take up a defensive stance as Kazunui's pursuit group, 1,650 men strong, attacked. On September the 14th, the Australian left position held by the 31st Battalion was trying to make a flanking maneuver when they ran straight into the 144th Battalion trying to do the very same thing. Neither battalion was able to gain an advantage over the other. The 21st Brigade, exhausted from weeks of fighting, was attacked by a half battalion of the 144th. Kuzunose amassed his artillery, eight guns worth on the ridge north of Oribawa, where they began to shell the Australian defensive center. As the same with the Battle of Afogi, half of the casualties for the Australians came directly from artillery bombardments. Despite this, the Australians in the center held on and Kuzunose's forces were unable to dislodge them. Kuzunose's attack on their left flank was also unsuccessful. Then on September the 15th at 2 p.m., Kuzunose tried to hit their right flank, but found their defensive line far longer in distance than it should be. Ether had not planned for it, but his right flank had formed a line over two kilometers along the Oribawa Ridge. This allowed the Japanese half battalion to lodge themselves between the 33rd and 3rd battalions along the line. The Japanese half battalion were almost completely surrounded and Ether soon shifted two companies of the 25th to take some high ground and attack the Japanese half battalion. This proved to be unsuccessful, so he also tossed two more companies from the 33rd 
to attack them as well. The rough terrain seems to have hindered the company's advances. By 5.30, Captain Klaus' company was in a firefight with the Japanese pocket but could not make any headway, losing an officer and two men in the process. They were forced to pull back, and it seems Ether's right flank would be penetrated further. Yet by the morning of the 16th, a stalemate had emerged. Ether's left flank was pinned down by the 144th, while his center was being battered by artillery, and the right flank could not dislodge the Japanese half-battalion that had wedged itself in the line. The center was increasingly being pressured as the Japanese kept clawing closer and closer while digging in at night. Remnants of the 21st Brigade at one point were swept by a combination of machine gun fire, artillery, and motor, killing 7 and wounding 19 of the 14th Battalion, and killing another 4 and wounding 10 of the 16th. To make matters worse, the men were all running low on water. Ether, on the night of the 15th, sent word to General Allen, I think the enemy's actions today is the culmination and putting into effect of a plan based on information they had collected about Porter during the last two days. I consider I have just arrived in time. I think it is going to take all my time to stabilize the position for the present. Porter agrees. Ether also added that he had sent 180 carriers with stretcher cases and had none left for forward support. He needed a minimum of 200 more sent forward, but knew air supply was not feasible in the present position. Over in the center, the men were still holding on, but the artillery fire was taking a dramatic toll upon them. The men had been on the run, fighting defensively for three weeks and quite bitter about their situation. One soldier of the 14th wrote in his diary, The strain was beginning to tell on all the members of the unit, and some of the lads in the forward positions who had stood up to it well had done a wonderful job right through. They began to crack up. Enemy motor, MG, and field piece continued its deadly work on our forward positions all morning, and our casualties mounted. A day or two before, one of the officers of the 14th had also noted in his diary, This evening, in the twilight, I buried two headquarters company chaps. A very sad business, as they had been terribly knocked. A shell had caught them in their slit trench. One of the chaps lending a hand fainted for a moment or two at the graveside. No one said a word. We just helped him to his feet. I noticed tears in the eyes of quite a few of the troops. From Kusanose's perspective, things looked equally grim, as he had no idea his artillery was causing massive casualties upon the Australian center. All he knew was that his men in the center were failing to progress. Both commanders pondered their situation, but it was Ether who was the first to take action. At this point, the Australians had 49 killed and 121 wounded, while the Japanese had 40 dead and 120 wounded. Unlike all the other previous battles, this time the Australians were not necessarily defeated. It was more of a draw. However, either was ignorant of the numerical advantage he held, and for that reason, he thought it best to pull back to a place called Imata Ridge. At 8.15 a.m. on the 16th, he signaled General Allen, Enemy feeling whole front and flanks. Do not consider can hold him here. 
Request permission to withdraw to Imata Ridge, if necessary. Porter concurs. After a telephone conversation with Allen at 9.30, Ether told Allen he had no indication of the enemy's strength, other than the fact it was greater than he had anticipated. Nor did he have an accurate idea of his or their casualties. He said the Japanese were moving around his flanks and he did not think he could hold them at Irabawa, but would do so if possible. He asked Allen if it was not a better idea to instead take up a position at Imata Ridge. Now, Imata Ridge was the last major natural obstacle along the Kokoda Track, before Port Moresby. Ether believed it was possible to erect a stout defensive position on Imata, where his supply lines would be short and the artillery could be moved forward from the capital to help. Major General Allen told Ether he must keep on the offensive and must hold the enemy as long as possible. He was allowed to withdraw to Imata if he believed it was the right decision, but Allen said, quote, there won't be any withdrawal from the Yamada position, Ken. You'll die there if necessary. Ether had misjudged the tactical situation, perceiving the Japanese could not be held back any longer. Ether decided to withdraw to Yamada Ridge, reasoning that if he continued to hold the position at Iribawa, he would soon be committing all of his forces to a defensive task and would lose any freedom of movement to adopt an offensive stance. Alongside this, he also had to protect the path to Port Moresby and keep his force intact. His supply lines were becoming threatened as the native carriers would soon run into Japanese patrols. He wanted to gain some more time for the exhausted units so he could launch a counteroffensive. Little did he know the Japanese were also facing their own dilemma. The closer the Japanese got to Port Moresby, the more outnumbered they became and they lacked the reserves to continue assaults. At 11 a.m., the small group of men that consisted of the remnants of the 14th and the 16th began to move back. The rest of the 25th remained firm to allow the battered battalions a chance to get safely to the back. Then the 31st began to back up, and by 4.30 p.m., the last of the 24th left Irubawa Ridge. The 33rd performed rearguard duty while all the other defenders made their way over the slippery tracks during the night under some very heavy rain. Later that afternoon, General Rawl sent a message to Allen which read, Confirm your orders to Ether. Stress the fact that however many troops the enemy has, they must have all walked from Buna. We are now so far back that any further withdrawal is out of the question, and Ether must fight it out at all costs. I am playing for time until the 16th Infantry arrives. The Australians performed leapfrogging ambushes using motors causing some very nasty casualties upon the Japanese forward scouts. By the time they broke contact, 50 Japanese had been killed, at no loss to the Australians. When the Allies began their final withdrawal from Oribawa, it surprised the hell out of the Japanese. When it was clear the Australians were no longer on the Oribawa Ridge, the Japanese rushed to the scene to grab any food that might have been left behind. Little of what they found was edible, as the Australians made sure to take everything with them. The Japanese soldiers were on the very brink of starvation. One Japanese war correspondent said of the scene when they arrived to Oribawa Ridge, 
We gazed over the Gulf of Papua from the peak of the last main ridge we had fought to ascend. I can see the ocean, the sea of Port Moresby. Later that evening, we stood on its peak and saw the lights of Port Moresby. We could just make out the searchlights shining over the airfield at Seven Mile to the north of the city. While their objective was in sight, it could be no further away in reality. The 25th and 33rd Battalions were protecting the withdrawal of the bulk of the Moriaba force, while the Japanese prepared a desperate charge against Port Moresby. If you recall, however, because of the supply line being stretched to its max on September the 14th, fearing the Americans and Australians might try to invade Buna, the Japanese High Command decided to cancel the Port Moresby offensive and reassemble the South Seas Detachment north of the Owen Stanley Range to protect the path to Buna. Hori had tried to press forward despite the orders, but by September the 16th, Hori's supply line had reached its maximum and he simply could not move further. Ori set up his headquarters in a valley behind Oribauer Ridge and issued an order proclaiming that the final advance in Port Moresby would begin on September the 20th. It is most likely that Hori said this to his men knowing full well it was a complete lie. Hori's intelligence officers had reported to him that nearly 20,000 Allied troops were in the capital. Hori also could see his men were on the brink of starvation they were in no shape for a large-scale attack. He had most likely issued the order as a means to lift the troops' morale, trying to give them some hope they would soon take down that town and grab all of its food. Hori's own supplies from the coast were now non-existent. Men and materials were being diverted to Guadalcanal because of the American victory at Bloody Ridge. Indeed, Hori would later receive a telegram from General Hitoshi Imamura on Rabal stating this. Stop attacking Port Moresby and wait for further instructions at present position. That message was followed up by another telegram later that evening stating this. Withdraw from the present position to some point in the Owen Stanley range, which you may consider best for strategic purposes. Hori would write... I'm not going back. Not a step. How can we abandon this course after all the blood the men have shed and the hardships they have suffered? I can't give an order like that. I will not retreat an inch. I'd rather disguise myself as a native of these mountains and stay here. Hori would contemplate disobeying these orders, but he came to the realization doing so would just increase the suffering of his men. There was little to no chance of success. Hori recalled, Traversing mud more than knee-deep, clamoring over steep precipices, bearing uncomplainingly the heavy weight of artillery ammunition, our men overcame the shortage of our supplies, and we succeeded in surmounting the Stanley Range. No pen or word can depict adequately the magnitude of the hardships suffered. In the end, it would take a signal from Emperor Hirohito to push Hori to withdraw. Meanwhile, on the other side, the War Cabinet and Navarrezi War Council had become extremely anxious about the New Guinea situation. 
and on September the 9th, the Minister of the Army, Mr. Ford, had asked General Blamey to go to Port Moresby to confer with General Rowell and report back to the War Council. Blamey arrived on the 12th, talking to Rowell, and returned to Australia by the 14th. On the 16th, he made a broadcast expressing confidence in the outcome, and on the 17th, he reviewed the operations in New Guinea before the Advisory War Council. In that review, he stated the Allied forces on New Guinea were around 30,000 men, and that the enemy was around 10,000. The reason for the chaos was because the Japanese had larger numbers of troops at their forward position, around 6,000 men. He placed blame for this on a supply line difficulty, and outlined a plan to reinforce the men at the front. An American regiment of approximately 3,500 troops were being sent to Port Moresby, as the commander-in-chief of the Southwest Pacific area wanted some American troops to obtain experience in operations and logistics in the area. Blamey concluded, stating, Lieutenant General Rowell, Major General Allen and the troops are confident that the Japanese will not be able to take Port Moresby from the land, and I share that confidence. The report was most likely a shock to Australian Prime Minister Curtin, who on the same evening received word from General Douglas MacArthur, who told him he was gravely worried about the situation. MacArthur said he considered the real reason for the unsatisfactory position on New Guinea was because of the lack of efficiency in the Australian troops, and that he was convinced the Australians were superior in numbers to the Japanese in the Owen Stanley region, but despite this were still withdrawing. He also believed the Japanese were having similar difficulties to that of the Australians, but were refusing to withdraw. He feared if the Australians continued to withdraw, the situation would become identical to what had happened in Malaya. The invaders needed to be pushed across the mountains with serious force. MacArthur concluded by stating General Blamey should go at once to New Guinea to personally take command and energize the situation. MacArthur offered to speak to Blamey personally about this, despite having zero authority to do so. Thus, he was kind of asking the Prime Minister to speak to the General himself. Mr. Curtin agreed to do so. General Blamey thus faced a situation in which both the Commander-in-Chief of the Southwest Pacific Area and the Prime Minister wanted him to go over. He basically had no choice in the matter now. He was going to be solely responsible for the military leadership and organization of all Australian forces in the Southwest Pacific Area, the bulk of which were not in New Guinea and were not fully prepared. He had to think about the entire defense of Australia. It was a colossal job. Now, Blamey's report that I went over before showed no hint of a lack of confidence in his subordinate generals, not even a suggestion that he wished to take control of operations from any of them. Blamey would arrive on the 23rd to Port Moresby, but not before sending a letter to Rowell on the 20th where he placed some very frank criticism on the politicians. The powers that be have determined that I shall myself go to New Guinea for a while and operate from there. I do not, however, propose to transfer any of the Advance HQ staff and I will arrive by airplane Wednesday evening, I hope with Hopkins. At present, I propose to bring with me my only PA, Major Carlton, two extra cipher officers, and Lieutenant Lawson. I hope you will be able to house us in your camp and messes. I hope you will not be upset at this decision, 
and will not think that it implies any lack of confidence in yourself. I think it arises out of the fact that we have some very inexperienced politicians who are inclined to panic on every possible occasion. And I think the relationship between us personally is such that we can make an arrangement to work without any difficulty. Well, when Blamey showed up on the 23rd as Commander-in-Chief, Raoul met with him and quickly made it clear he did not welcome him and that the arrangement would be very, very painful. General Raoul was told he could keep command of the First Corps and was quite pissed off to find out Blamey would take command of the rest. Raoul said of the situation, He comes here when the tides have turned and all is likely to be well. He cannot influence the local situation in any way, but he will get the kudos and it will be said rather pittingly that he came here to hold my hand and bolster me up. A very strange situation emerged between the two, prompting Blamey to ask Major General Burston, the head of the Army's medical service and an old friend of Rowell to speak to him and try to make him understand the situation. This did not seem to help much. And by September the 28th, Blamey relieved Raoul of command and sent a letter to Curtin, saying he did so because Raoul had a, quote, non-cooperative attitude. Generals can be prima donnas. While things were rough on both sides, either had sent forward some of the 25th Battalion along the track to see if any ground could be gained. They were successful, and this prompted him to move artillery pieces to bombard the Japanese positions. By September the 26th, the South Sea's detachment retreated for the first time and Hori literally had no protocol for such a thing. He was forced to perform an ad hoc fighting withdrawal identical to the one the Australians had been performing against his men for weeks along the Kokoda track. How the turntables. When Ether finally launched an assault against Oribawa, they found no enemy there, just a ton of abandoned equipment. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Well, the Australian boys on New Guinea were now pushed with their backs literally against the wall at the Amata Ridge. There was no more room for retreat. They had to push the Japanese back, or Port Moresby could very well fall, and with it, all of New Guinea. General Blamey was now in control of the show. Can the Australians turn the tithes? <laughs>